Well, good morning to all of you and a special good morning to all of you who are joining us online. Um, reminder, you don't think about this very often. We have our good group here, but this is only really a small portion of those that are participating in our service. Uh, we've been in this series uh, that we launched at the beginning of the year called One Story, the Bible being one story, many authors, but really it's God that's behind all of it. And so far uh, in Genesis, we have been discovering that God is very present with his creation, even in the most unlikely of times. God is with his presence. I mean, his presence is with the people in the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve, even after they sin and they fall. Uh, beyond that, uh, we see that God is present with Noah, even when the earth is covered with the waters of judgment. After that, we see that God is with a rejected little boy out in the desert by the name of Ishmael, and God's with him. We saw last week that God is with a, a servant named Eleazar, who's on an impossible task in a foreign country, and God is with him. We also saw how God was with a lonely, uh, undeserving con man who had met his match in a foreign land, that man Jacob. Today we're going to see how God is with a golden boy who has fallen on hard times. Okay, so... In this most unlikely of places, in all the most unlikely of places, there is God. We talked about he is God with us. And the thing about this book, the Bible, the one story, is that this God who you just don't know when he's going to pop up next or where, and this God who keeps surprising people and keep, keeps popping up in unexpected places will continue to do this. And I, I say this because... Lots of times we find ourselves sort of living as practical deists. We know that God is there. We believe that God is there. But somehow we act as though we don't believe that our, our transcendent God is actually imminent, that he is there with us. So put in theological terms, what we're going to do today is very, very simply this. We're going to pursue the existential fulfillment of the doctrine of imminence based on the eschatological realization of Pentecost. In other words, go on a God hunt, okay? That's the, that's the real term for it for me. So we're looking here at, at Joseph today, this uh, golden boy who falls on hard times. And lots of you may be familiar with the story of Joseph from Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Andrew Lloyd Webber's work of art a long time ago. Um, but the story of Joseph actually spans 14 chapters in the book of Genesis. That's nearly a third of the entire book. That's a whole lot of real estate devoted to one story. And this story is really just rich with plot twists along the way. I've done a whole series before on the life, just on the life of Joseph. But for our purposes here in one story, this series, we're just kind of, we'll land on the mega theme of it all. And it'll be more than enough to challenge us to the very core of that, I am certain. Here's how it begins in his story, chapter 37 of Genesis. This is the kind of Jacob's family line. Now Israel, formerly Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him, it says. So in the very first four verses, the writer wants us to be really, really clear that Joseph and his brothers are not tight. <laughs> Matter of fact, the Bible says that they hated him, couldn't even speak a kind word to him. Now, hold on to that phrase that we just read. Hold on to that phrase for a little, because we're going to come back to that at the end. 
But for now, suffice it to say that there is some major sibling rivalry going on here. Let me just ask, how many come from a big family? Come from a big family, okay? Uh, not that many anymore. It's becoming more and more rare. Uh, I, I grew up the sixth of seven kids, so I, I get this. Matter of fact, let me ask, how many here are the oldest child in your family? Oldest, okay, we got a few. Uh, you're the ones that your parents were trying everything out on until they figured it out. How many middle children we got, okay? Usually some latent frustration amongst little <laughs> middle children. <laughs> you never got away with anything. It's not for lack of trying. Um, I remember hearing about this salesman that was going door to door and he knocked on the door. And when the door opened, there was a 10-year-old boy there um, holding a can of beer and smoking a cigar. And the, uh, the salesman looks down at him and says, is your mother home? And he goes, what do you think? <laughs> How many youngest kids we have here? Okay, a bunch of young, spoiled babies. No, I don't mean that. I was the, I was the youngest for quite a while. I was, I was the sixth of seven, but for seven years I was the baby until my little sister came along and stole my favorite spot, that little sinner. Uh, there was a comprehensive study that was done on sibling rivalry not too long ago. You know how much fighting goes on among siblings? Research says that kids between the ages of two and four have an average of six fights per hour. Per hour. Potentially 90 fights a day. Or 3,000 a year. So if you're parenting small children, no wonder you're so tired. Uh, but we see here in Genesis that this sibling rivalry is a really, really, really old story. And the story of Joseph here, it goes from bad to worse. And the Bible tells us that uh, Joseph was the son of Jacob's, his father's old age, and also the son of his favorite wife. He had two wives, favorite one. So when the other boys, all the other brothers would walk in the room, Jacob might ask them how, how the flocks are doing, how their chores are doing, but when Joseph walks in, dad's face lights up. He beams, can't help it. Joseph was the one that dad would brag about, and Joseph, I mean, Jacob knew what he was doing, his teachers in school, his friend's name, knew all about him in a hundred ways, in ways that parents probably aren't even aware of, but children can smell a mile away. Jacob's favoritism for Joseph just kind of leaks out of him. And what made it worse is that one day this favoritism takes on concrete form. The Bible tells us that Jacob gave Joseph this ornate robe. It calls it an ornate robe. The meaning of that Hebrew word for ornate can be a little uncertain right there. It could actually just mean long sleeves, but most of us are more familiar with the King James translation that calls it a coat of many colors, um, says that it was given to him. Not like, exactly sure where the amazing Technicolor dream coat comes from or how biblical that is, but hey, knock yourself out, Donnie Osmond. So now by anyone's standards, it was this robe that set Joseph apart. Maybe it was custom tailored from Bloomingdale's and all the other brothers got Walmart, whatever the case may be. Whenever Joseph wore that robe, his brothers were reminded that they will never be loved by their father the way that he loves Joseph. It was an in-your-face expression of raw favoritism, and the brothers cannot stand it. They hate Joseph and his stupid robe. Now, Joseph doesn't make things any better. Matter of fact, he seems to naively fuel the fire of their jealousy. Uh, it goes on, the very next verse in, in verse 5, Genesis 37, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? 
and they hated him all the more because of the dream and what he had said. So basically, Joseph is saying to all of them, one day I'm going to rule over all of you. You all will bow down in humble obedience to my authority. Isn't that great? Aren't you happy for me and my dream? Isn't this wonderful? Let's play bow down sheaf now, just to practice and get ready for it. Now, obviously, the sibling rivalry thing here is just not getting any better. It gets worse and worse and worse. The Bible tells us that Joseph's brothers hated him all the more. This hatred kept on increasing. There's a thing that keeps popping up in the Bible. You've probably noticed this already. Jealousy turning into hatred. Happened with Cain and Abel. Happened with Isaac and Ishmael. Happened with Jacob and Esau. And now it happens here again with Joseph and all of his brothers. Their hatred grows, and soon it becomes uncontainable. So one day, the brothers are all out in the fields, tending to their flocks, grazing their father's flocks in a distant area, and Jacob sends Joseph out to go check on them. Now that's interesting in and of itself, because is Joseph somehow disabled? Can he not work? I mean, why are all the brothers out working and Joseph is not? And to make it even worse, Jacob sends, his, sends Joseph out not to go help them, to go check on them, to go report, evaluate their work and come back and report. He says, go out and check on what they're doing. So Joseph goes out, and the Bible tells us in Genesis 37, 18, while he was still far off, while Joseph's still far off, says they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Now, when somebody's really far away, you can't tell who it is. How do they know it was him? That robe, that reminder, another reminder. Hatred now turns into conspiracy for murder. This is what we read in verse 19. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Notice they don't even call him by his name anymore. They don't say, here comes Joseph. What do they say? Here comes that dreamer. When you're jealous of someone, when someone's done you wrong, when you hate someone, we tend to not even think of that person as a human, as a person. Well, the Bible tells us when Joseph arrives, they strip him of his robe, that painful reminder, and they throw him into a dry well, just throw him down into a well. Originally, the plan was to leave him there and just let him die. But as the story goes, the brothers later, later decide to sell Joseph into slavery because some Midianite traders were coming through that area or passing by. So they, then they take this robe that they've come to hate so much, and they soak it in goat's blood, and they're going to give it to his father and tell Jacob that Joseph must have been slaughtered by some kind of wild animal. And of course, Dad Jacob mourns and weeps like crazy. I mean, his favorite son, Joseph, is now dead. At least that's what he thinks. Genesis 37 ends with this verse. Meanwhile, I love that. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So Joseph has these grandiose dreams of being a ruler. But slavery is pretty low on the totem pole, isn't it? But look at this phrase that keeps popping up. Genesis 39:2. The Lord was with Joseph. Say that with me. The Lord was with Joseph. It says that Joseph was faithful and that Joseph was obedient. He didn't gripe, he didn't complain, he had integrity, he served, and he trusted that God was still with him, and God was with him. He had so much favor that he keeps elevating in Potiphar's household. He's a slave, remember? And Potiphar ends up making him head of the entire household. So Joseph is doing his thing 
with character, and he's being honored by God. And so far, this slavery deal is just not going all that badly. It's not bad at all. Until there's a twist. Twist. Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, starts getting a little thing for Joseph. And it says in Genesis 39.6, it says, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. I did a little word study here, and the Hebrew phrase that's used there means silver-haired with the body of a middle-aged golfer. (laughs) If I got the linguistics right, I think that's what it means. At any rate, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph, but he he won't go for it. He thinks, man, Potiphar has entrusted everything to me. I can't take his wife. And he says to her with these words, is, how could I do this thing and sin against God? How could I do that? Well, she gets frustrated by that. And one day when nobody else is around and Joseph is working inside the house, she grabs him by the shirt and demands that he sleep with her. And he pulls away, leaving his ripped shirt in her hands. And that does not end well. She accuses him of assaulting her and makes up this big melodramatic story when Potiphar comes home. And Potiphar is furious, and he ends up throwing Joseph in prison. So, you ever have one of those kinds of days? All you're trying to do is do what's best, do what's right, do the honorable thing, and you find yourself staring down the barrel of horrible circumstances. Like, no good deed goes unpunished, right? But again, there's these verse, uh, this verse in verse 21 that says, God was with him in the jail, right there in that prison. I don't know, maybe God was just reminding him, Joseph, I still have a plan for your life. You can't see it right now, but remember, I have this incredible view from above that you don't have. Trust me, I'm taking you somewhere. So don't just look at the circumstances. God says, look at me, look at me. And Joseph did, and God was with him. Joseph was so honorable and so full of integrity and served with such a servant's heart. Guess what they do at the jail? They elevate him there. They made him inmate number one, kind of the head of the jail. Now, remember, this does not happen overnight. This reads pretty quickly in the book of Genesis, Genesis, and it looks like one day to the next. A decade has passed. It's been in there a decade now. Well, one day... After all this time has passed, Pharaoh gets ticked off at some of his staff members and sends two of them off to prison. They are uh, his cupbearer, which is kind of a personal butler, and also his baker. Maybe burn the scones or something. I don't know. But while those guys are in jail, they start having dreams, recurring dreams. And they say to Joseph, these dreams keep coming to us, and we don't know what they mean. And Joseph says, hey, I I know dreams. (laughs) I had a bunch of them when, when I was young about being a ruler. They're probably looking at him thinking, and what are you doing here? (laughs) But he says, I can help you with this. And Joseph does. He helps them with their dreams. He explains, okay, here's the deal. I know what these dreams mean. I don't know how to break it to you, Mr. Baker, but your days are numbered. Three, to be exact. (laughs) You're going to be impaled on a pole, and it's going to ruin your whole day. Uh, Mr. Cupbearer, I've got some good news for you. Good news. You're going to get your job back. You're going to be restored back to Pharaoh, right back to the throne room. And when you do, when you end up back in the throne room with your, own, with your old boss, just one small thing. I'm not supposed to be here. I was set up. I was framed. So please convey that to Pharaoh. Put in a good word for me. My name is Joseph. Remember that. Well, it happened. Three days later, just as Joseph predicted it would, the baker 
He's history. But the cupbearer goes right back to the throne room with Pharaoh. But guess what he forgot? <laughs> he forgot Joseph. Every one of those kinds of days, one of those kinds of weeks or months or decades. Let me just suspend the story right there for just a moment. Thirteen years now have gone by, friends, and in every one of those moments, Joseph had the opportunity at that moment to, to believe that maybe God had just kind of forgotten about him, to lose sight of what God had spoken to him early in his life, because we don't see perfectly. God sees perfectly from above, and he's working. But in all of those moments, Joseph could have been limited by the little snapshot that he could see in that moment, and he could have lost all hope. So I think God's speaking to some of us. Maybe you're right in the middle of one of those 13-year deals right now. I want to just remind you that God sees the whole picture. He sees it all. And God's plan for our life doesn't always look like the all-American Norman Rockwell picture. You know, Sometimes we get out our canvas and we say, God, see, here, this, this is what I want my life to look like. See how tidy it is? how orderly it is, nothing's out of place, it's so orderly and predictable, this is what I want right here. And God says, that's not the way it works. I want you to just surrender to me and I'll paint your life any way I want because I have this incredible view from above and I know the plans that I have for you. I'm working, just trust me, take a breath and trust me. Think about this, when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, God's plan was still moving ahead. There was no glitch there. When he's at Potiphar's house, God wasn't caught off guard by all that stuff. When he was accused, betrayed, ends up in jail, God's agenda is right on track. When he's forgotten by the cupbearer, he is not forgotten by God. So even when two more years pass, God is still timing the events of his life perfectly, just like he's timing the events of your life perfectly right now. Because at just the right moment, Pharaoh would have a dream. Even when it's dark, God is with you. God's at work. So there was a guy that I heard about by the name of Christian Rieger, and he spent four years in a concentration camp at Dachau. And he was imprisoned from the Nazis from 1941 to 45, and his crime was simply being a Christian and resisting the Nazi regime. But look at this quote from him. This is what he said. Nitschke said, the philosopher, said that a man can undergo, undergo torture if he knows the why of his life. But here, he says, I here at Dachau learned something far greater. I learned to know the who of my life. He was enough to sustain me then, and he is enough to sustain me still. So listen, God has not forgotten you. No matter what kind of dungeon experience you're going in right now, God is with you even in the dark of a 13-year deal. And it's okay, friends, to be really honest with God. You can speak up and, and speak your feelings and your guts to God. He wants it. You can say, God, help me to see beyond this darkness right now. Help me to see your hand at work in all this. I don't see it right now. Help me to focus on your promise. Help me to be assured of your unfailing love. I mean, if Joseph could survive, survive those years of abuse and loneliness and loss, you can too. Why? Not because you're super Christian, because you're not. But because the same God that was with Joseph is the God who is with you. Trust. Okay, the story kind of turns here. 
Pharaoh has this dream, and he gets really stressed out about it because nobody can interpret this dream for him. So one day, two years later, two more years later, the cupbearer miraculously has his memory kick in, and he says, whoops, there was this guy, this guy back in the prison. God was with that guy. He was really good with dreams. His Joseph, that was his name. You ought to bring Joseph in. So Pharaoh goes, and he brings Joseph in. And he asks him to interpret his dreams, and I find this to be really interesting. In Genesis 41, 16, Joseph says, I cannot do it. So he's saying, I'm not magic. It's not me. I can't do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So Pharaoh relates his dream to Joseph, and Joseph says, okay, here's the deal. It's going to get really, really bad around here. You'll have a good season first. We're going to have seven years of plenty. I mean, there's going to be some serious bumper crops going. But then you're going to have seven years of zip, like nada. So Pharaoh, if you're really smart, if you're smart, you'll take these abundant years and you'll store away to have extra so that we can survive those lean years because it's going to be rough. And Pharaoh says, wow, you really are no ordinary Joe. <laughs> Pharaoh acknowledges here. He says, God is with you. I can see that. God is with you. And I'm going to put you in charge of all this whole project, this whole storage deal. Matter of fact, only I, Pharaoh says, only I will have a higher rank in Egypt than you. Guy who was a slave, prison for 13 years, but God is with him. And God elevates him here. So for seven years, Egypt disciplines itself and stores during the seven years of abundance under Joseph's leadership. And just as the dream foretold, major famine comes on the land. Nobody in that part of the world had any food except Egypt. And who's in charge of all the land, all the food, all the storage? Joseph, God's man. So people from all over that part of the world start coming to Egypt because they alone had food. And guess who comes to Egypt looking for food for their family? Joseph's brothers. Of course, they don't recognize him. How could they ever expect to find him in Egypt alive as Pharaoh's right-hand man? They probably thought he died in slavery years ago. Now, if you're Joseph, this is your moment right here. You could see them all there, bowed before you, and you could take a deep breath and say, I told you! I told you this is going to happen. I told you, I told you, I told you, you jealous, scheming turds. I told you, all of you. But Joseph doesn't do that. I mean, even after all these years, he won. He could do a world-class industrial strength gloat, but he does not. Now look at the scene as Joseph reveals his identity. This shows his godly character. Verse 3, chapter 45. He just says, I am Joseph, says to his brothers. Is my father still alive? And I love the next phrase in verse 3. Brothers, but his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They were stunned to realize that this is their brother Joseph standing in front of them. So Joseph says in verse 14, come over here. Probably had to say it 10 times. Come over here. Come over here. They come closer and he says, I am Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. That's what's known as a pampers moment. <laughs> This is their worst fear come true. But look what Joseph says to them here. Man, what grace in these words. Do not be distressed. 
And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And then he explains the deal about the famine and how it's going to go on even quite a bit further. And in verse 8, Joseph says, So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He completely lets them off the hook. You didn't send me here. You think you did. It was God. Joseph knew that even in the darkness of those 13 years, God was working. And now it's becoming crystal clear to him that God's plan put him right there. And it's this series of unbelievable events that God brings about the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And God looks on this from his perfect viewpoint. He says, I love when a plan comes together. Listen, friends, this amazing God that we serve, he's a God of unfailing love, and he knows what he's doing. He's with you, even if it looks really dark, even if it looks really hopeless from your viewpoint. It's not. You are not forgotten, not at all, not at all. All right, just one last thought here today. I asked you to hold on to that phrase from Genesis 37 at the beginning. It was this phrase. And his brothers hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now notice in the closing scene of this Joseph story, in, verse, in chapter 50, it says that Joseph reassured them and spoke kindly to them. It's a reversal. Forgiveness reverses the curse of hatred. They showed hatred. Joseph shows love. Which of those things win, wins in the end? Love does. Fast forward 1,900 years. The crowd is assembled there and they're screaming out, crucify him. And they mock while Jesus is beaten and flogged and nailed to a cross like a criminal. And as Jesus hangs by his flesh to a piece of wood, he looks upon all those people that are killing him. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus has shown ultimate hatred and he responds by showing ultimate love. Which one wins in the end? Love does. Love always does. Let's remember that. Now, why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray. We're grateful for your word, Lord, that you use to light our path. We are not flailing in the dark when we tune into you, Lord. If we get angry and block you out, then by all means, it seems like we're in the dark. But God, when we tune into you, when we pursue relationship with you, open communication with you, then we will walk in the light, your light, your perfect light. So Lord, thank you for your fantastic order from your million foot view. You see it perfectly. And Lord, things get fuzzy and cloudy for us, I know that. But help us, Lord, to in those moments trust you, to trust your heart, and to trust your unfailing love and your ability to orchestrate the affairs of our lives. We trust in you, Lord. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here or watching that are in one of these times, one of these seasons, these 13-year deals where it seems dark. God, I pray that you'd give them the strength to draw close to you, maybe closer than ever before right now, to cling to you when things seem murky and dark. And I know, Lord, that in your goodness and your love, you'll embrace us and shed your light upon us. We believe you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.